Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. As guest host today, my name is Graham Almond pitts um, We have the honor of welcoming Assistant Professor of History at the University of California at Santa Barbara, Shadeen Sayali, who is the editor of the Arab Studies Journal, the co-founder and co-editor of the Jadalia Ezeen. Today we'll be discussing a novel approach to the history of Palestine, suggested by Shadeen Sayali's new book, Men of Capital, Scarcity and Economy in Mandate Palestine, which uncovers forms of class formation key to understanding the trajectory of Palestinian nationalism. Dr. Sayali, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Your uh, highly anticipated new book, uh, Men of Capital, contains uh, a very unique archival base and new and fresh approaches. And the, the title itself suggests the organizing principle you adopt, which is sort of critique, this sort, these sort of biographies of your protagonists, these men of capital. Can you introduce them a little bit for us? Sure. Um, so the, the, the book is really trying to engage and historicize a group of actors that have been invisible in um, various strands of historiography. And the, these actors are what they call themselves men of capital. These guys are businessmen, entrepreneurs, uh, bankers. Uh, they become, after 1948, some of the most important contractors in insurance, um, uh, businessmen, and uh, bankers and financiers. Particularly, what's interesting is in the 1940s, they are establishing initiatives like the Arabia Insurance Company and earlier in the 30s, um, the Arab Bank, which go on after 1948 to become some of the most important businesses in the Arab world. And the reason that I was interested in these men is because they are basically written out of um, the scholarship on, his, on Palestinian history before 1948. And you write about a resounding silence on Arab capitalist practice. To what do you attribute that? The history and historiography of settler colonialism, on the one hand, has made this silence kind of necessary. Um, and then I think that there is the sort of um, resounding inf- emphasis on three particular characters that don't tell us um, the full story, which is to try and see the the ways in which in Middle East scholarship we've understood the middle class as either an object of shame or an object of celebration. So either they're heroes or they're treacherous, um, they're collaborators or compradors or failed. And and so I think within the historiography and the history and the historiography of settler colonialism, what ha- that's basically entailed a story that can only compare Palestinians to the yeshuv or the statutory community of Jewish settlers in Palestine. And in doing that, then all that becomes sort of available, the affective sort of categories that come out of that are either the kind of honorable but ignorant peasant on the one hand, um, a small group of workers, or um, this kind of decadent internecine uh, what's called in the literature aristocracy. So here is the Husseinis and the Neshashibis. And we're sort of led to understand that there that this is the landscape of Palestinian social life. And my argument is that there are actually class constructions that were happening that were materially grounded and that had a lot to do with the formation and the shifting of social life and social norms that would influence what that had long-lasting legacies that would influence what we know today. And you're not comfortable with this label, Comprador. Mm -hmm. You're not comfortable with the suggestion that you are men of capital, many of whom made great fortunes during the Mandate period, during the Second World War in particular, can be seen as collaborators with the settler colonial project Mm -hmm. or with British colonialism more broadly. Mm -hmm. Why don't you think that label fits these? And if you can bring in... uh, I thought a really interesting character, Fuad, Fuad Saba, mm-hmm. who's an Anglican. Right, 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 right. Yeah, Fuad Saba is a sort of, I begin the story with Fuad Saba, who's writing the Arab Hire Committee in 1948 to get a visa for um, one of the people that work with him. And they are sort of moving their headquarters from uh, 
from Yefa to Baghdad. Uh, and, and at this moment, a lot of these businessmen are basically moving their fortunes around because they see the catastrophe that is about to hit them. Perhaps at one point, especially when I was doing the dissertation, I think that I did, um, I was a, more sympathetic to these men than I would be come later. Um, I think I, I, I was very much taken by the idea of, you know, telling a Palestinian history that was not overdetermined only by uh, the Zionist conflict, to really try and engage Palestinian history within a broader Arab story, within a broader international story, and not tell these lives only through uh, um, what comes to feel like both a conceptual and empirical trap of you can only understand them through their relationship either to the British colonial power or to the or to the Zionist settlement project. So it's not that I don't in many ways somebody like Fuad Saba is complicit, right? And and had and I, these guys did wind up failing in many ways, but I'm more interested in what is it that they wound up doing. And, you know, Saba is basically, he's the first licensed accountant in the mandate period. He runs a company, he establishes a company called Saba and, and company that continues to exist today internationally. And he edits this journal, which I spend um, my first chapter engaging called Al-Iqtisadiyat Al-Arabiya. And what's fascinating about him is that he is basically funding the rebels of the 1936-1939 revolt, but he and his cohort are choosing not to cover the rebellion in in the journal. Right, because they're pursuing this kind of what you describe as in their ideal model politics and economics would be would be separate spheres. Right. Right. They're engaged they're engaged in this, you know, very modern project of distinguishing the social from the economic from the political and really trying to say that we can have a project that's just about economics and not about politics, which is, you know, absurd. And but what many economists and economic thinkers are doing at the time and continue to do. Sure, but something that we have to take seriously at the same time. Absolutely. No. This, this was their frame. Your methodology in that regard is an interesting reconceptualization of the political. You try to look at the political as the stuff of every day, quote, the new anxieties about money, how to manage it, how to shape and reform the social body that both money and its lack threatens. For me, these, these figures are shouldn't be celebrated nor dismissed and i think engaging them is the only way to take them seriously enough to critique them and part of what i'm trying to do in this project is to actually engage a group of palestinian historical figures by taking them seriously so as to critique them um so so that they're not it's not that they aren't complicit with colonial rule. It's not that they aren't. And in point of fact, one of the things that's most interesting for me in studying these people is actually having a critique of their profoundly exclusionary class projects. And this is, you know, drives me in many ways because I think that this is central to the kinds of practices that they are and the kinds of ideas and economic thought that they're engaging in and that when these men of capital and, and to a lesser extent women of capital are engaging in a kind of normative civilizing project through their understandings of economy, they cannot see but themselves as actors in that vision. And so people like the maid and the worker and the peasant are only specters that haunt it. It's only in World War II when they understand the depths of the crisis that they're in that they begin thinking, okay, maybe we should begin as economic figures to represent, attempt to represent these nomads and, and, and peasants who are who then they switch to saying these are the real Palestinians. By it. But at that point, it's but too it little too late. Too late. Right. Yeah. This project is, on the surface, a lot of times very interested in subject formation, yeah. sometimes primarily interested in yeah. subject formation. But 
after I had read the whole manuscript, I started thinking that you're describing subject formation that's happening in particular material conditions. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, so how did you develop this theoretical approach? When I first started my PhD um, journey, I was interested in sort of cultural studies and subjectivity formation and representation. And, you know, originally I had conceived of my work in primarily those ways. And then I think as I started doing the archival research and coming across um, spaces like the Chambers of Commerce and um, words like el mustahlik or the consumer and thinking, well, what, who are these people? Who, who are these, you know, who are these people that are occupying these, these spaces and these subjectivities? So I, I think I try to do both. And I think in the last 10 years, the return to or a, 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 an investment in political economy and material conditions is something that is super important and really um, something that I that I like to think I'm part of. Um, and there's so many now initiatives that are going on engaging these kinds of um, a return to a revival of political economy after the cultural or discursive or linguistic turn. Um, and for me, I think the challenge is going to be for future scholars to be able to do the material conditions, but also to maintain the lessons of that cultural turn um, to really attend to how do these material conditions constitute different and changing forms of subjectivity. And that methodology guides your intervention against, first of all, an older Zionist narrative charging that these people didn't do enough to build their state. These people weren't political. So you describe how actually actually they were. Their way of making politics was pursuing profit. Right. So profit, right. you know, uh, the accumulation of capital, private property, so these notions of self-responsibility and so on. Right. I mean, you see that as a politics. And therefore, can you describe how that's an affront to this older Zionist narrative that these people weren't doing enough to build a state? Mm -hmm. You know, I think we would have to talk about Zionist narratives in the plural um, because I think there's various sort of um, renditions of them but let's say the old school narrative has been pre-modern Arab economy mostly focused on agriculture versus a modern capitalist westernized Jewish economy and these two kinds of things come into you know um, confrontation with each other these two sectors and it's clear which one wins out and then in much of the kind of economic Zionist narratives there's a there's an ethical um, there's an ethical component of that winning. There's an ethical component of that triumph. And and my aim and hope was to say, perhaps we could step out of this, this um, nationalist, the, the settler colonial Zionist impulse of talking and thinking through triumph and celebration, historical triumph and defeat, which is then replicated in many ways in, in Palestinian nationalist narratives as well, and to really try and get to the business of, well, what was going on materially on the ground in the spaces beyond the kinds of spaces that we've thought about, whether it is um, political parties or, um, you know, the Arab Higher Committee or the Supreme Muslim Council or all of the, all of the different kind of conventional spaces that we've thought about and what do we do with a historically consti constituted commercial class in Palestine? How do we tell that story? You almost seem to be in dialogue with yourself in the manuscript in terms of there's this temptation to celebrate the fact that, look, there's more going on here mm -hmm, than mm -hmm. this older Zionist narrative that mm -hmm. described a very stagnant and backwards mm -hmm. Palestinian existence. But you resist that temptation. Um, am, am I right to read that as, as a dialogue with yourself or some sort of reference to your own intellectual change? Um, change yeah, or, for sure. I think that for most of us who do Middle East studies, I think that we have to constantly fight the impulse to apologize and explain or to evidence um, our humanity, in a sense, the humanity of the subjects we, we, we write about. And I think that that 
limits sometimes how deeply we can critique these subjects. And at a certain point, I became, I was free of the the earlier impulse, and I began to really look at these actors um, and think through how is it that we can follow Edward Said's kind of Gramscian injunction of doing an inventory of traces? How can we make that inventory in order to do the kind of self-critique that we need? And part of the impulse was to say, Fayadism, the sort of contemporary Fayadism, the way that people have talked about the embrace of particular understandings of trade and profit accumulation and in a kind of World Bank IMF framework, how is that pattern of Fayadism something that's historically constituted, right? How do we take seriously um, the neoliberal present um, by engaging this liberal past? And that the point there is, you know, that the Nahda or the Arab liberal project was not just cultural and literary, it was also deeply economic and that there is a, you know, we don't yet have a history of economic thought in in Arab or Middle East um, history. We don't have one place. We have histories of different moments of economic thought. We have history, we have plenty of amazing histories of, of, of economy and economies, but as an intellectual project and how is it connected to pan-Arabism, how is it connected to nationalism, how is it an, an connected to class exclusion, we don't have that yet. And I'm hoping that this is one step and invitation to think about what do we do with a group of people who are reading Smith and Marx and uh, Ghazali and Ibn Khaldun and doing this very kind of engaged in this multiple universes of discourses and making sense of their every day and really trying to imagine uh, um, the future. And these people maybe have escaped uh, the historian's gaze previously because as we were talking about earlier um, today before we started recording they don't fit these categories that maybe the Western Academy is comfortable with. It's this hybridism that makes them hard to deal with sometimes. Right. So a lot of people will say, well, you know, this isn't um, a distinct middle class because some of these actors, while some of them are self-made, like Salba, for example, was a self-made in many ways. Others of them are landowners so that they don't fit the kind of orthodox understanding of who can be um, a middle-class entrepreneur. And I think it's time for us to really unpack these orthodoxies. I think people have been unpacking them in European historiography for a long time. They've been unpacking them in you know Anglo-American historiography for a long time. I think, again, if we're narrating this history simply to explain failure, then we reify the terms of weakness and we uh, and we see things like you know what's interesting about this journal Iqtisadiyat al-Arabi is that you'll see within it translations of major socialist thinkers so there's a way that you can look at that and see well this just sort of throws a wrench in my thesis because it proves that these guys aren't, you know, capitalists. They're not capitalists in this, you know, in the way that they ought to be because they're, these historical figures invite us to think about these categories anew. And that's why I call them men of capital and not capitalists because I think um, it's important to engage how these people as they were thinking through them, their own projects and their own identities, how they define themselves. And and I think it, there's a temptation to see, aha, there are the capitalists, but actually to think, well, you know, it's a mixed bag. And, and, and a lot of these guys would turn out to be some of the most important capitalists in the Arab world, especially right after the night after 1948 and in a period in the 1950s and 60s. So it's not that I'm disavowing that label. I'm just trying to really historicize it in that moment. Good. And, and that's a good opportunity to turn to your women of thrift, mm-hmm. which I think 
in that chapter, in that second chapter, uh, through this lens of gender, you sh- you can sh- it enables you to show this process of class formation very clearly because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there is a process going on wherein you have increased capital accumulation, increased expenditure, household expenditure, but that is welcome to the sorts of to your your protagonists, but also scary. Mm-hmm. Because the classes below them, this has created some sort of mobility. Poor people are going to the movies. Poor people are also consuming more. Right, right, absolutely. Can you introduce us a little bit to Selwa Saeed? Sure. So Selwa Saeed is actually a um, Lebanese-born woman who marries a Palestinian and then becomes um, an important figure on um, on the Palestine Broadcasting Service. Um, and she is a, um, in the oral histories that I conducted, she would often come up as some, someone people remembered as sort of giving guidance and, um, you know, giving advice about how to be um, a civilized woman. And she uses a lot of this language of Ahl al-Hadara or the, the people who are civilized, the civilized people. So first of all, you have some sort of anecdotal evidence that, People did were listening to Salwa Saeed. People yeah. were interested in what she was saying. People did sort of use this as a, I was going to call her a Palestinian uh, Martha Stewart. Right, <laughs> so right. Sort of baseline for, you right. know, how to maintain an acceptably uh, domestic home. Right. And how to be a refined woman, I think, too. A lot of that, yeah. Um, where the project began, and this kind of links back to our earlier conversation about subjectivity, was... I was really interested in sort of looking at consumer practices and what they can tell us about identity formation and so on. And so domesticity is a really important part of that. And this project really just, you know, is informed by uh, a a broader kind of scholarship on domesticity in the Middle East, which we have actually quite a lot of. And it's an engagement with this program that Salwa Saeed does, which is a a 10-part series on... What, what's called the Ar- the new Arab home, which she is kind of in detail instructing women how to be modern. And how to be modern for her is to be simple, clean, orderly. Um, it's to have a lot of notebooks. It's an obsessive kind of fixation on writing down everything you spend, which my grandmother used to do. And I used to always think, wow, you know, in and you had, you're supposed to have several different notebooks. One of them is to write down, use to write down every cent that you spend um, in order to manage the family budget. If I can, yeah. partly as feminist praxis, she's saying that despite what has been said about a, a woman's lack of capability to keep good accounts, to work with numbers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. She's encouraging women to take on this role. She is, and she's doing what a lot of the domesticity managers and, you know, domestic science is what they're doing more broadly and internationally. But the trap of that is that on the one hand, Oh, so there's several traps. One is it's a very class-based project. So you're only talking to a very small group of women the other thing is and you see this happening in the united states context which is so domestic science becomes a way in which women let's say at the turn of the century are able to really engage discourses of science and take part and participate in it but in order to do that they have to um demonize the they have to demonize the 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 domestic manager and they have to pathologize her and they have to show how she is the reason why um, everything is bad in the world, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and, you know whether it's infant mortality or um, broader economic, you know, productivity in the nation. And so I think for me in, in, in looking at kind of these very gendered budgetary um, domestic management projects, we find what is, again, um, should be a source of critique of these actors, which is what is very, very much at stake for them is creating the new class hierarchies that that then they will enable them to continue a kind of social dominance. And they're scared. They're scared of a changing class structure. 
They're as you said, they're scared of the cinema. They're scared. They're they're very excited by all the new kinds of products that are available, but they also see them as sources of danger. Where potentially, as Salwa Saeed says, you know, where the maid could eventually um, uh, arrive at a sense of self. And so the project is, how do you manage, her project is, how do you manage money in your kingdom that is the home so that you maintain your status with your husband, so that you guard the broader kind of class status, so that you guard a national economy, and so and and ultimately so that you keep your man at home. And this is a very kind of you know, understanding, she has a different understanding from the guys who are writing in Iqsadiyat, where she sort of sees women as intrinsically able to save and manage money, whereas men are naturally inclined to spend money. And uh, a woman's keeping the home clean and keeping herself in shape and keeping everything um pleasant and compelling for him will safeguard him from the temptations of what she calls houses of entertainment. Right. And there's this question of needing to live up to a particular set of spending practices wherein you need to spend enough money on the right things, but not too much money on the wrong things to construct yourself as moral and your home as, um, a warm, safe place to keep your men loyal and to keep your children um, and, and, and to raise good children. On the one hand, superficially, this feels very derivative from uh, an Anglo-American cult of domesticity about which much has been written. And so Saeed herself, you have her saying that Eastern culture is inferior to Western culture. She's saying these lessons about keeping your men at home are something that we've learned from the West. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the adage that you have, and I didn't know was English until you indicated that, I heard, I first heard this from Palestinians, the idea that the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Mm-hmm. Really, I, had no, I, had, I had no idea that was, uh, that, that was English. I mean, I um, don't know what the actual origin of it, she says it's English, so what Saeed says, but, you know, who knows. But, but have you heard that? Have you heard that among Palestinians? I have. I've heard it among a lot of people, yeah. I've heard okay. it among Americans, too. Well. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, so... Yes, in some ways it's derivative. Um, I think that there are ways to think through this. So in terms of, is it derivative? I think, again, one of the challenges for Middle East scholars and scholars of, you know, what used to be called until recently the non-West, you know, calling the rest of the world what it isn't, is how do we step out of this kind of circle of origin and imitation? And I think this is, again, a challenge. And so I think one of the ways to step out of it is to look carefully at what she sees are the ways in which Palestinians are inferior and how she thinks that they're actually superior in other ways. So it's not necessarily culture that she thinks is inferior. It is that the way that women aren't um, actually implementing what she understands is the authentic Palestinian culture, which she understands as, in many ways, superior because they value family life, because they take care of each other, because they're, while we do need to have an individualism, we will continue to have different kinds of structures of uh, embracing people into the fold. And this is what the men, the, the, um, writings on the fam- the family budget are as well, you know, that, well, we're better than the Europeans, right? Because we take care of each other. It's not as brutal. It's not as... And in some ways, this kind of mirrors um, the Nahda project more broadly from both its kind of more, you know, anarchist socialist tendencies that Ilham Maktasi writes about to the long tradition of, you know, the more Islamic modernist engagements with the Nahda, Muhammad Abdu, and so on. And so I think that saying it's derivative is not enough because, again, it is, you know, and I'm not invested in saying, no, it's not derivative. Yeah, it is derivative. And then what do we do with it, right? And I, what I found interesting was reading about 
um, what was going on in Brazilian domesticity at the same time. And I found a lot of similar influences about how uh, sort of not similar influences, but similar patterns in the way that um, culture and class became wedded in the way that understanding what it meant to be a good culture cultured subject and and how um, wedding culture to class status and class practices you know is something that is happening more internationally and and yes I think that the people are following images and norms of what they think is successful but they're shifting it and changing it adapting it Can you talk a little bit about your source base, which is quite unique in terms of you got into the archives of the Chambers of Commerce of Nablus and Jerusalem? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, can you talk about the process of working in those archives, but also what those archives helped you see mm-hmm. to make your intervention? Yeah. So um, one of the things that I'm worried about with this book is that people are just going to read the first two chapters. And, um, you know, the 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 rest of the book, the other three, <laughs> are really sort of telling the story of World War II in a different way and engaging kind of, you know, British colonial documents and this vegetable crisis and these chambers of commerce. So to get back to your question about the source base, I what happened was originally I was looking for, um, I was, I was, I began my research thinking of a different project entirely. I was thinking about doing Palestinian consumerism in Israel from 1948 until, I don't know, the I think I, I had as my cutoff date the 90s or something. And I sort of thought, well, I'm not sure that I want to do that project for the next 15 years. And then I started looking through the newspapers and I began finding references to the consumer, the consumer this, the consumer that, and the, and the Arab Chambers of Commerce said this, and the Arab Chambers of Commerce did that, and they made these declarations. Who, you know, I started thinking, well, who are these people? And I was, uh, I began finding some of their files in the Israel State Archive, and then I was very fortunate to have, um, gotten the advice from Selim Tamari, who said, go to the Nablus Municipality Archive, which I was a very interesting experience because, of course, the city of Nablus is under um, a very painful siege that has been ongoing. And I think this is something that people don't quite always get a, a, a real sense of, of what it means to live under occupation and the broader and ongoing project of settler colonialism. But essentially, you know, Getting to Nablus itself was sometimes a two-hour affair, not because of distances, but because of checkpoints and bypass roads and so on. And then um, getting into Nablus through the the checkpoints and then getting to the Nablus Municipality Archive, which was as I was working on it, was being relocated because each time there was any kind of Israeli invasion, the, the archives themselves would be targeted. Um, fortunately, the Nablus Municipality Archive has actually been digitized and is available in Amman, which is a really good thing. Um, but these are some of the kinds of conditions of archival work um, that Palestinian studies is mired in. The Chambers of Commerce documents that I look at are a bit later. So they're happening mostly in the 1940s. And it's in this period that has been understood by most scholarship on Palestine as a period of paralysis. So the this, you know, intense revolt, which was primarily a, a social revolution in many ways, has taken place. Um, the brutal kind of uh, retaliatory counterinsurgency um, by the British has devastated the Palestinian community, um, and and something like a, a broad percentage of Palestinian men have either been killed, 
exiled or detained, um, and they're using the ki- same kind of tools that would become very common for Palestinians, house demolition, torture, collective punishment. And so the, 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 the idea has been, well, after the revolt, it was just this kind of decade of waiting for the inevitable. But actually what I saw in these Chambers of Commerce documents was something completely different, which was this attempt for these economic, um, you know, for these businessmen to position themselves as economic leaders. Now their project in the 1940s looks much different from the earlier uh, work that I've done on the, the periodical Iqtisadiyat, which was a much more hopeful and optimistic kind of outlook on the possibility of a capitalist utopia um, in the near future. Whereas in the 1940s, these chambers of commerce are basically like the sites of managing crisis. And, 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 and I looked through these archives to, to think through both or to learn about how the British colonial government was attempting to refashion the relationship between um, um, their management of economy and imports, exports, consumption more broadly in Palestine, in Mandate Palestine. And then how are these businessmen really um, dealing with the broad rationing regime that the British colonial government is instituting. And some of these men make a lot of money during the Second World War. Am I right to suggest that? So at least how I read your book is that it's it's an interesting moment because by their own metric, which is profit, correct management of of the economy, Mm -hmm. however they're formulating that is what's going to push the nation forward. But you see this expansion of profit right on the doorstep of this national catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. So sort of what what they thought would empower the nation isn't necessarily doing so. Am I reading that correctly? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there is, that, you know, the, there's a huge influx of capital during World War II, and the British are using both Egypt and Palestine as their primary military bases in this, in this war. And that means for a lot of... Um, the you know a lot of villagers and farmers that this essentially means their first opportunity to really escape the structures of indebtedness because they are able to sell their vegetables um, in entirely new markets like to the military and to the army and so there is an influx of capital and some of these guys are making immense amounts of money sort of the you know the 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 banks the two Arab banks in this period are growing faster than any other financial institution in Palestine at the time um, but there's also a, a very clear attenuation of the capitalist promise that these men are invested in because before World War II, they're really understanding the prospects for capital accumulation and profit making in a broader pan Arab imaginary. And what's happening in the 1940s is even though this influx of capital is happening, they are, it's very clear to them that that world, that possibility of a broader Pan-Arab world has attenuated. And they begin to really talk about economy in a much smaller realm that they are now talking about a Jewish economy versus an Arab economy within Palestine. And that has to do with the, the very intense kind of regulation that the British colonial regime, the British colonial government is conducting, which makes it very clear to these men that they're basically um, confronting their own national demise. And that's such an interesting moment because you've led up to that with this particular kind of subject formation. These men of capital construct themselves as men of the nation. Mm-hmm. But then whatever their project is, they are totally circumscribed in continuing to realize their project of being men of the nation by these material conditions Mm -hmm. that exist during Mm -hmm. the war. Mm -hmm. So that's that whatever they had, however they had hoped to continue to construct themselves and construct their nation crashes against the realities of British colonial policy during the Second World War. And so for me, that was the very interesting moment of dialogue between... um, the material and the discursive, if right. you will. Right. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, and I also think the thing that I keep coming back to, uh, um, I, 
throughout the work, I think, is that what we what we've done is compare the Palestinians to the Yishuv. And I think that's a faulty comparison. I think what we have to compare is the Yishuv to the British colonial regime. And if you do that comparison, you know, you'll see, like in my chapter on nutrition and my chapter on the vegetable crisis, you'll see that within that comparison, um, in different in different circumstances, the Yishuv actually outdoes the British colonial government in Palestine in both capital and expertise. So that's the right comparison to make between those two powers. The other thing is the story about what you're basically describing, which is the colonial straitjacket that these guys are in, has to do, I think, first and foremost with... Um, what is truly exceptional about the mandate in Palestine, and that is that it is the only official case of settler colonialism that the that the um, that the mandate commission signs on to. Yes, there's other cases of settler colonialism that's happening under mandate rule, but it's understood by the commission as exceptional. Um, um, or, or, or out, out, outside of the bounds of their own sort of what they can legislate. But I think from the very beginning, these Palestinians are very, the entrepreneurial men of capital, women of thrift, elites. And I'm really, it is a story about elites. I'm, you know, I think it's clear and I think we need to call them elites and I think we need to take seriously how elites innovate strategies. I think it's a mistake to continue thinking about elites as state and unchanging. It just doesn't help us get to the present moment that we're in. I think from the very beginning, they understand that they are in a settler colonial situation, which does not give them access to the kinds of institutions that they would need to really engage in the economic initiatives that they're invested in. I think they hold out hope throughout the 1930s because of this promise of a of a regional possibility. Um, and by the 1940s, I think it becomes quite clear to them that the national future is foreclosed um, as they see it. And so I think that, you know, part of the challenge in terms of understanding how these guys are thinking about the 1940s is to really... Um, see the ways in which the, 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 the deep kind of commitment to understanding profit as progress is shaken but continues well after 1948. And I think that's the kind of, that's the kind of point that, that we have to attend to in order to actually have a critique of the present. And you leave that engagement with the president almost entirely implicit until the very last paragraph of the book, mm-hmm. where you have studiously avoided indictment or vindication until <laughs> that moment. But uh, I can't but help read uh, just a little bit of tinge of indictment. Right. And uh, anyway, could, could we have you read uh, okay. the last paragraph? In the 1930s and 1940s in Palestine, capital accumulation and the Nahda project went hand in hand. We should remember that these Palestinians, in their imaginings of territory, in their emphasis on detail, in their ideas of progress, did not live their world as shadows of the Jewish settler or the British colonial officer. Their realities were also part of a broader Arab project. But it is time that we attend to this liberal age with its utopian visions and its fashionable ideas with more scrutiny. It was not simply or coincidentally exclusionary. It was contingent on exclusion. The poor and the hungry were then, as they are today, either invisible in utopian landscapes of progress or otherwise the very personification of ugliness to be reformed as supplements, not as actors in history. If we look to the foundational structure of the Nahda as contingent on the maintenance of this exclusion and inequality, we may be able to stop eulogizing it just long enough to recognize that it never died. Yeah, no, that's an indictment for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and and how do you go from that moment where you finish your book to understanding sort of, to mourning even uh, this moment where we're looking at what appeared to be 
interrupted revolutions in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. I think that you're right to say, you know, how do we make sense of this in the kind of moment that we're mourning now? I want to say that it was the moment of hope that we had that was the rupture and the mourning is what we've just been accustomed to and used to this this whole time in a sense. So it's like we're back to we're back to what we know, but it's much worse. I, I think it is really one of the worst moments in Middle East history. Um, I was saying for a couple of years that, oh, this is probably the worst since, you know, what you work on, which is um, World War One and the famine. But now I'm starting to think maybe this is even worse than that with the kind of broad... Um, I mean, especially in this particular moment, in these last couple of days, the way that the Mediterranean has turned into this massive graveyard um, for people escaping for their lives from Syria. Um, and I think that, you know, when we talk about the Palestinian Nakba, it's now it's, you know, <laughs> yes, the Palestinian Nakba, the Syrian Nakba, the Iraqi Nakba, it's like Nakba after Nakba. And it's, you know, Rosemary Sayer often sort of instructively speaks of an ongoing Nekba or an ongoing catastrophe in Palestine. And now we are sort of, I think that's a, also a very useful way to think about Iraq. It's now a way to think about Syria. Um, I think what we need to do is take the forces of capital Seriously, I think we need to understand what are the intellectual genealogies that empower and enliven capitalists. And I think we need to, I think for far too long um, in both activist circles and in scholarship, it's been understandably understood as the right thing to do to study the subaltern, to study the left. But I've become very tired of an increased emphasis on, you know, the left awoke, the left died, the left is asleep, the left is awake again, the left this, the left is bankrupt, the left is, you know, enriched, the left did this, the left did that. And at some point I start feeling like, well, what's everybody else doing? And how relevant is the left, really? And I think in the Egyptian context, one of the painful things for me has been to really face in a way how irrelevant and if I can say we, we were as revolutionaries. You know, well, what is the Revolutionary Project? Yes, and now it's very, you know, powerful the ways that the call to, you know, bring down the fall of the regime, you know, Shabiri the Nizam. Okay, great. In Lebanon, in Iraq. And, but what is the, first of all, what is the Nizam that we're breaking down? And then what are we, what are we proposing after that? And I think... We have to understand this regime. We have to understand these regimes. We have to understand these structures. And to understand them, we have to take seriously economic thought and as a, as a, as a premise and a pillar for liberalism and economic thinking and economic ethics and economic morals and economic incentives as a premise for neoliberalism. And we have to also engage how is the right thinking? Is there an Arab right? How does it work? What are they reading? You know, a lot of people sort of say, oh, well, you know, those people, they don't really have an intellectual project. I think they do have an intellectual project and it's working. So how, you know, in what ways? And I think it's, I mean, I think if I could just speak to, for example, the 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 new Suez Canal, right? What CC Abdel Fattah Sisi is calling the the gift, Egypt's gift to the world. Um, it's easy to sort of look at that project and think, this is so absurd. You know, this is such a joke. This is a real kind of performance of hyper masculinized nationalism and. It's funny on many levels if it wasn't so tragic. But who's buying these? Who's buying this project and how? Who is it going to work for? Who's it not going to work for? And on that for? level, we have to take it seriously. Yeah. Whatever our personal reaction. Exactly. Yeah. So.
So you started talking about the First World War as this uh, as another Nakba that the Arab world has faced, mm. and, and this is an interesting moment, I think, for comparison. You, you, if we can go back a little bit to this moment of the Second World War, mm. where Palestine, because the British uh, Navy doesn't want to spare any shipping that, to bring food to the Eastern Mediterranean, um, they have to coordinate the economies of Egypt, Palestine, Lebanon, Syria very exactly to for political reasons um, so that unrest doesn't happen to maintain this as sort of a to, to, to maintain very simply to maintain control over mm-hmm. these regions um, which are strategically vital to the allied war effort and you talk about sort of the incoherence the ineptness of the Middle East supply center who is, which is the organization in charge with coordinating food policy. And, and what's this intervention about the calorie? And you talk about an in- interesting moment where before the war, people have been talking about, nutritionists have been talking about minimum necessary caloric intake, mm-hmm. and then they move to the optimum. What's, mm-hmm. what, what, what's that about? So, um, so let's start with the Middle East Supply Center. I think actually the the incoherence that I was more emphasizing was the incoherence of rationing regimes that they're conducting, that the British colonial regime is conducting in Palestine. In some ways, the Middle East Supply Center actually does some pretty interesting things that would have long legacies. And this is stuff that, you know, people like um, Vitalis and Heidemann have have documented in, in interesting ways. And um, although the case of Palestine hasn't really been looked at, um, which is what I try to do here. And and so I'm trying to do, in that part of the work, I'm trying to do, I would say, two things. One is I'm trying to engage some of these economic categories and indices that we see as self-evident cost of living index, um, uh, gross national product, all of these things that we have because they have become so powerful that we have almost internalized them as transhistorical. But they had a long journey before we internalized them. Exactly. Them self-evident because they arise from a particular political context and economic context. Exactly, exactly. So I'm trying there to say, how is something like the calorie? Because, the, you know, the, the, the even the index of the cost of living has a very intense history that is um, closely tied to both the calculation of basic needs and the imperative of containing dissident politics, whether we're talking about the United States or we're talking about Britain or we're talking about the colonies. And this to me is one of the things that is most compelling about history and doing history through a lens of political economy is to see the ways that a hungry um, you know, a hungry woman who is trying to raise her children and her household in London is described in very similar ways to, um, you know, the Palestinian who is trying to do the same thing in Jerusalem. And I think it's these kinds of um, ways of both um, attempting to blame the poor for their hunger, right? And and also to rationalize um, and regulate people's consumption patterns, people's, um, you know, how much are their basic needs in order for them to be good workers or be good um, mothers or to be good soldiers, you know, how are these processes linked to um, broader modes of governance. And the thing I think that's very interesting about nutrition is that it's part of this broader turn to colonial development that has a very particular history in the 1930s around that is in response to some of the massive um, upheavals and protests that are happening all over the French and British um, colonized world. And these 
Um, and, and, you know, there's a longer history to colonial development, but in, it's a very particular moment in the 1930s and 1939 where the British and the French are really trying to reconceptualize notions of development so that they include within it ideas about public welfare. Um, and we know from the work of Zachary Lockman and Frederick Cooper that this is when departments of labor are established because um, the thought is we'll bring in these radicals and um, sort of shield the radical kind of critique, co-opt it into labor um, departments and keep them from going into the more nationalist mode of resistance. And what the other thing that I'm trying to do in this work is to really conceptualize nutrition and the rationing of food as part of that turn to colonial development, as part of the story of the complicated story between how development is sort of promising social improvement, um, but that its imperative is political containment. Right, and, and, and it doesn't always live up to its promises of social improvement uh, right. in any way. In, in your case study of Palestine during the Second War no. shows that. Right. I was interested in, so the British aren't sort of doing this very, or at least attempting to very carefully orchestrate the Palestinian economy during the war. But Palestine, if we look globally, appears to occupy maybe a more sensitive strategic space than Bengal, for instance, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where two million people starve in Bengal right. during the war. Right. And in that, what emerges from that literature is not that they don't care, but that their war aims are more important than figuring out how to stop famine in Bengal. Mm -hmm. Sort of why, what's different about the Palestinian case? I mean, am I right to read that as this is strategically a different region or do Palestinians occupy a different place in the British racial imaginary? I.e. are no. Palestinian lives more valuable than yeah. Bengali lives? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I think the, the famine in Bengal is sort of one of the most abhorrent examples of colonial mismanagement it could have completely been avoided and i think that's the kind of you know really clear sort of examples of that negligence and mismanagement and choosing not to sort of do what could have easily been done but i think strategically yes i mean i think the middle east front is a really important front for the for the british um for the british colonial government in 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 palestine but i wouldn't say i'm not sure about the racial hierarchies i think that would be an interesting question for future scholarship um but i will say that i think in their attempts to at the beginning of the war to begin calculating Palestinian bodies and Palestinian population and Palestinian consumption and Palestinian basic needs, what they basically, what the British colonial government faces is the ineptitude and the negligence of the previous two decades. So in other words, here I'm trying to speak to the kind of tempting way that the colonial panopticon is very sort of, you know, compels us because it's a great way to think about how does power happen. But the fact of the matter is these guys weren't obsessed with calculating bodies or their consumption. Until they needed to be. Until they needed to be. And the reason that they weren't obsessed with it before is because they were holding this popular, you know, they were holding the Palestinians in this kind of weird status quo position where they had no, where they knew that they had engaged in a partnership with a settler um, colonial project. And clearly there was going to be no way out. Right. Um, and the so Palestinians couldn't be political subjects. Exactly. In, in your formulation. Yeah. I mean, I, Say you know, in in this configuration, the Palestinian could never be developmental subjects because it's actually in the British interest, in the British colonial government's interest, for them not to develop because then it will make kind of whatever happens next easier to to take you know um, easier to 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 manage. So I think that. You know, by the time we get to the Second World War, it's sort of like, 
okay, we have to, we have to, we have to avoid disturbances. And they've just come out of the 1936-1939 revolt, which has totally um, taken up a lot of their, most of their forces in the Middle East and a lot of their energies. And they can't, they can't continue to face this kind of insurgency. They have to put a lid on it. And so this is why they do the 1939 white paper to a large extent so that they can put a lid on the possibility of insurgency. And, you know, the reason that they're trying to um, contain and manage the possibility of famine is precisely because they can't have um, broad insurgencies on, on the street. Right. And, and, also manage the war. Um, so yeah, that's what that chapter is trying to do. But I also, this is one of the things that's been really interesting to me in the present moment, which is the kind of the specter of the hungry and how kind of the bread riots, right, are talked about in so many different historical instances as sort of what is to be most feared is the return of the, you know, the 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 awakening of the hungry which is like okay who are these hungry people that are going to take over and and you know in contemporary discourse let's say in egypt for example on all sides whether it's cc supporters or cc opposers everybody is um reiterating this fear of the next revolution is going to be the revolution of the hungry and then it's going to be really bad right <laughs> so it's this specter of the of the hungry that i think also i mean and you're doing this in your work as well is deserves a closer closer analysis and engagement Thank you so much for listening today, and thank you for being with us, Shireen Sayeli, and giving us a preview of, uh, I think, for me, what are very exciting new directions. Oh, Thank you, Graham. It's been my pleasure. History. Okay, thank you so much. Thank um, you. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. See you next time. Thank you.